Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Stephen Titmus, and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Giorgio Moroda. Moroda has had a truly exceptional life. He's one of only a handful of artists who can seriously claim to have changed the face of popular music. He pioneered the use of synthesizers in pop, taking electronic music from the avant-garde to the top of the charts. His work with Donna Summer in the 1970s, most notably I Feel Love, continues to inspire artists from across the musical spectrum. Moroda's career, however, is much more than just disco. He's also one of the world's most celebrated producers and successful movie composers, a line of work he's won three Oscars for. We met with Giorgio at an event organised by Bridges for Music at London's Shoreditch House, ahead of the release of his new album, Deja Vu. The results were an entertaining walk through 40 years of pop and Hollywood history. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Giorgio Moroder is up next. So I'm very happy to be here with, for this great program, Bridges for Music. But I had so much fun talking to Stephen about football. So should we talk about football? You know, Ancelotti and We can talk about football, yeah. No? 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 Okay. About Chelsea? No, okay, then let's, then maybe we should talk about music. <laughs> the people have spoken, Giorgio. Okay. Well, we've been talking a little bit about electronic music, and of course you are one of the electronic music greats. But that's not how you started, was it? How did you first start in music in your hometown of Italy? Actually, as a guitarist, I, I was never a great one. So I started to be a professional musician, and we were bass, piano, and guitar. Now, a pianist and a guitar, they never work well together. Because pianist does certain chords, the guitarist a different one. So I finally they threw me out of the of the guitar and I had to learn to play And so I became a bass player and I played as a as a musician all over Europe in uh, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, uh, England. I, I just I had one gig in England at the Savoy Hotel. I won't forget that one. And um, then in, I, was, I think I was 27, I moved to Berlin, where I had an, an aunt, so I could stay there, I could live there, and I stayed there for four years, and then finally I moved to Munich. Of course, and during that period, you were the front person, and Giorgio was the, the, the name you produced and made music under. Did you enjoy being the front person, and being the person in the front of the stage? Well, I, I, yes and no. I'm uh, when you're young, you want to be a singer, become famous, and and me too. But I know that I didn't have a great voice, and especially I 
I couldn't remember the lyrics of the songs. So I, I, I thought to myself, go back behind the scenes, and that's when I became more like a producer than a performer. And a big moment in your career must have been when you first started using a synthesizer. When did you first hear a synthesizer on a record? There was a beautiful album by Walter Carlos, now Wendy Carlos, called uh, Switch It On Bach. And I was fascinated the way he used uh, the synthesizer to recreate all the sounds of the classical orchestra, like oboes and violins. And I thought that that's, I have to have that, that new machine, actually. And I found a classical composer in, in Munich who had one. He played me a few notes, and I said, that's it. So I, uh, I rented the, the synthesizer, the big Moog module, including Tommy, the engineer. And at the time, that machine was a monster. You needed to know every details because you had to connect all the channels. And, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't want to learn it. And the second thing, it was so expensive. So that's how I started. And what did the owner think about you using this machine to make pop music? Because he was making classical music. Was, it, was he cool with that or...? You know, he, I guess he was in his classical world. I know he was not happy with the song I did, um, I Feel Love, because that he said in, a, in an interview that, that he had it before that I copied, which is not true at all, because it, <laughs> it, it's totally different. So, of course, I Feel Love featured Donna Summer. How did you first meet Donna Summer? Was it, was it in Munich that you first met? Uh, I was working in Munich with Pete Bellotti, my English co-producer, and uh, um, one day we needed three back-up singers with uh, no German or whatever accent, so we found Donna and we found two other girls, and, and she was great. She was beautiful, a great character and incredible voice. So we decided to do, an, do songs with her. So we did two songs which did okay, not, nothing great. And then finally, uh, one day I thought, I should do a great sex song. <laughs> right? And uh, I loved uh, the one with Jane Birkin and, and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the, who is it? I oh, I, I don't know him. Who is Oh, Gainsbourg. Oh, who is he? <laughs> anyway, I love that Je t'aime moi non plus. And, uh, but I told Donna, if we do it, we have to do a really a new sexy song. So one day she came and said, I have a line, uh, the top uh, lyrics, uh, ooh, love to love the baby, ooh. And uh, <clears throat> by pure coincidence, I had a studio in Munich called Musicland, where I had the Rolling Stone, the Led Zeppelin, all those guys. But that day, the studio was available. So I went down, it was in the cellar, and we did a little demo, a little recording of uh, Love to Love You Baby. Two, three days later, we did a recording, a real one. And I must say, I was embarrassed uh, with that song. I thought, nobody's going to release it. No way. So I gave it to my publisher, and she went to meet them, to the music uh, festival, and she called me the, in the evening and said, oh, God, Georgia, we have a hit. Everybody loves it. 
So what was the point when you really realised this is massive? Was it when it went to America and it started getting rotated over there? Yeah, it came out in America, the three and a half version, which did okay, but nothing special. And one evening, Neil Bogart, the owner of Casablanca, called me and I said, would you want to do a long version? And I said, perfect, because it would be one side of an album and I had already four or five songs for the B-side and suddenly I have an album. And so we went back to record. I composed about uh, two new sections. And then the day came when Donna had to do the moaning, <laughs> which I was really waiting for her. <laughs> and so we started, and it sounded fake, like, you know, a lot of times it's fake. <laughs> So she, she, I guess she was embarrassed because the husband was there, Pete Bellotti was there, myself, the engineer, and friends. So I, I thought, let's throw everybody out. I dimmed all the lights, and she could just see me for inspiration. Uh, and she did it in, what, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and, and it was done. And that long version was the version which really made... Uh, made the song. Then the DJs played it in discotheques. Uh, it was a big hit in the gay community, especially in America. Then they asked the radio stations to play it and, and it became a hit from that moment on. Fantastic. And I, f I find it fascinating around the time you was having this huge hit, you actually released a really, really experimental album. I can't even pronounce it. Einzelgänger? Come on, you can do it. Einzelgänger. <laughs> but that was, you know, one of the first purely synthesizer-driven albums, right? You know, perhaps Kraftwerk as well at that time. Yeah, it, it was a, a little bit of a weird uh, thing. I used, I used some of the Moog synthesizer, but I used a lot of uh, a vocoder, special filters in the voice. Like, uh, I, I would, there was one song which was... I cut the voice, da, 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 so it sounded different, and and I must say it was a big flop. <laughs> it just didn't sell. It was, I guess, a little too early. But thinking about it, two years later, you started to make records like I Feel Love, which really took the synthesizer to a whole new level. Can you tell us about the inspiration to make that record? Where did the idea come from to make a record that sounded so futuristic? Okay, the concept of the album was to create uh, five, six songs with the sounds of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then try to do something, a song which we could call a song for the future. And so I got Tommy and his big computer, this big wall, and usually I compose by having a rhythm in my headphones, a microphone and, uh, and chords, and that's how I sing and, 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 and compose the songs. I was in front of this gigantic, it looked like a you know, a switchboard of, of the old f uh, telephones. And there I was. Okay, so how do I start? Okay, the only thing, the first thing, let's get the tempo. One, two, three, four, right? So I created a click. I recorded the click. And then I told Tommy, give me, uh, let's start with the bass line. So I, he gave me C, dun, 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 dun. very, very difficult to find a sound and especially to tune it. So it was dun, 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 dun. I didn't even play it. It was all in the, in the computer. And so I recorded eight bars, dun, 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 stop, 
back again, dun, 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 out of tune. So it took it took uh, enormous time because the, at that time the computers were not uh, quartz driven. So so then I I got uh, the uh, white noise and the and then you cut it and it becomes a, a hi hat and then a snare and then the kick and then all the sounds and. Uh, and the, the way I recorded it, because I didn't have a melody, I did eight bars in, let's say, in C major, then then four bars here, then eight bars again. So it was all a little bit disjointed, because I didn't have a melody. So I had to compose a melody on something which was not that great. But Donna did a great job. And then the magic came when we mixed it in um, in Los Angeles. The engineer came up with a, a delay. So instead of playing dung 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 dung, it was and that was. I thought this is it. This it's not the sound of the future, but I thought this could be a hit. And what did Donna think of the electronic sound when she first heard it? Was she into it? I don't know. I think she cared. She wrote the lyrics, and I think she cared about the music. But and I must say, the very beginning was not that great for the record because Neil Boga, the owner of uh, Casablanca, liked it but I guess it was a little too advanced for him so they didn't promote it that well but it it did very well in, in England and then from England it went back to America. And this may sound like a really stupid question but I feel Love's one of the greatest dance records ever made. Did you make it with the idea this is going to make people dance or was that kind of accident? A byproduct. Whatever I do, or whatever I did, was always based and always with the idea: let's have people to dance, and especially, especially that 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 sound. Obviously, that disco period was an amazing period for you. You had so many hits. You know, "Nights in White Satin," "From Here to Eternity," the stuff with Munich Machine. It's clear that you were a massive influence on disco producers, but I wondered if any disco producers really influenced you at all during that period. No, I think... I, <laughs> I, I thought there was only Marauder around. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, they, I, I loved a lot of great disco so- sounds, like uh, I Will Survive. What a great song, one of the best disco songs, maybe the best one with Gloria Gaynor, who... Later on, I had the the honor to I did a recording about fifteen years ago, and great lady. That was the song which I really liked as a disco song. Fantastic! And um, quite soon after, I feel love. You got your first film work with Alan Parker and uh, Midnight Express. Um, I'm interested. How did that come about? Was that something that was expected, or it, it was all a little bit of a coincidence. The, the Casablanca and Filmworks were the producers of, of the, the movie, and I just heard later that uh, Alan Parker wanted a computer or a synthesized sound, and uh, I think he asked Evangelis, but then it didn't work out. And at that time, I Feel Love came out on the market, and he loved it. So he called me and said, there is one scene in the movie where the kid, the the guy runs away and said, give me something driving, something in the style. And that's when I did the the chase. The the rest, he said, just do whatever you feel. It's, uh, you know, it's a dramatic movie. So get me some really intensive, intense music. And uh, I did it by myself. 
I mean, he wasn't there. And uh, we mixed it on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, he was really concerned and only concerned about that piece of that clip. And had you always wanted to work in movies or was it just a job? No, you know, living in Los Angeles in, and being in pop, it's it's almost impossible because the the composers like John Williams, they're all classical trained, they all write music, they they play instruments. So I think I was one of the first one able to get into the movie business coming from pop. And that really couldn't have gone much better. You won an Oscar for it, for the best score on your first go. Yeah, yeah, that was... That, <laughs> That was quite nice. <laughs> and I can tell you, I kind of, kind of knew that I, or I really thought I would win. No, just just people yeah. talking. Yeah, <laughs> people talking. Then because I won uh, the Golden Globe, I won several critics. But then when my name came up and I went up there, and I know it's terrifying. It's not like here. You're all nice, right? <laughs> So you stand up there, and you know the stomach starts here, and then it comes up here, and the voice gets a little harder. And then you look down, and about uh, 15 feet away, there's Jack Nicholson, and uh, there's Steven Spielberg, and then the stomach comes up here. And then at one point, I wasn't able to talk. And then, thank God, it was Dean Martin who started to make some funny jokes, and then the beautiful Rachel Welch, who gave me the Oscar, and uh, I was so happy it's over. (laughs) But from then, the film work really started coming. You know, um, had American Gigolo soon afterwards, and Cat People, which must have been amazing because you got to work with David Bowie. But I heard David Bowie kind of got to you through Brian Eno. He recommended you. Is that right? Well, the first time I really thought this could be a song which could represent the future was when Brian told uh, David, David, I think he said something, I found the sound of the future. But I, I don't think that was the case because with Cat People... It's a weird movie, very intense, very obscure. So uh, the director, uh, Paul Schrader, I composed the song and then we were thinking who could sing it. And nobody was more ideal than David. You know, David is very mysterious and the movie's mysterious. And and so I sent him the tapes and he loved it. He wrote the lyrics. I went to, to Montreux. There was a studio. He lives next to the city. To make a long, a short story long, uh, we had dinner at the hotel, and we were talking about the song. And then he said, "Okay, so let's start tomorrow." So I thought something like around three, four o'clock. No, no, because you know, with the the, the big guys, the rock and those guys, they work at night. So I, I said, "Okay, so how? When do you want to start?" So he said, "Okay, I come down here for breakfast, and then we go." So I was absolutely surprised. So being such a great singer and having written the lyrics and he knew the song, we did it in about three takes, four takes max. And then we told Paul, uh, okay, it's done. He said, no, 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 that's impossible. You cannot have, the song is not done because usually, because in the movies, it takes us at least 10 takes each thing. I said, look, we redo it for you if you want, but uh, David, it's done, right? So he didn't really believe it, and it was done in, in I think, three takes. 
Amazing. But I suppose by the time that cat people come around, um, the taste in music in the USA especially had really changed. You know, disco sucks had come in, dance music wasn't a thing anymore. I suppose the film work was the ideal timing in a lot of ways for you to kind of keep your career going in the right direction. Yeah, I felt a little sorry for Donna because she... First of all, I think she made a mistake. She changed a record company, a, a new environment. And one of my mistakes was uh, to convince her or, or have the idea of changing. In fact, we had uh, quite a nice song with uh, Hot Stuff, which was a little bit of rock. And we should have continued more in that style, go a little away. But I was happy because I was now in the movie business and, and Donna... You know, the disco was not that great, uh, and so she faded away a little bit. But then she had another big hit song called I, I Work Hard for the Money. But uh, disco was gone, and uh, although it was gone in America, in, in the States, uh, I mean, in Europe, it was still playing, and, and they called it dance music, but it was still, but in America, it was definitely gone. So through the 80s, you pretty much became the biggest, you know, soundtrack producer in the world. You know, um, you had Top Gun, Flashdance, Electric Dreams, all these humongous films, that, that Scarface as well. How did it work in each individual film? Did you work with the directors or was it mainly on your own in your studio? Well, I was lucky to work with, with great directors, Adrian Lyon. Uh, one of the main influences in me was uh, Jerry Brockheimer. Jerry was the producer of the movies. He produced Flashdance, uh, Thief of Hearts, uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Top Gun. And uh, he has a very good sense for music. So uh, sometimes you work more with the director. In the case of Jerry, it's more Jerry. With um, Scarface, uh, I had Brandy Palma, of course, who helped me a lot. So it depends. Uh, with Scarface, that was one of the first scores which I did by not seeing the movie. I just read the script. Usually I I like to see when the movie is done or at least 70-80% and then start working. And your work rate seemed massive during this period. How many soundtracks were you doing a year at your peak? Yeah, I did too many. <laughs> yeah, because, for example, with the Scarface, the problem was I had to do the music for the movie, the score, and they wanted me to compose something like seven, eight songs, which then then it's it's quite difficult because in the movies, contrary to f do let's say pop artists, they have all deadlines. You know, you have to be at the end of the month or at a certain point, you have to have them. So whatever you do, you have to deliver. And so some of the songs didn't really come out like I I would have liked. Did you did you turn anything down at all, or did you? almost accept everything well yeah kind of yeah you yeah you say yes it's just a little project but then it becomes a big one and then some big mistakes like uh, alan parker after winning the oscar and he winning best movie right with uh, with oliver stone he wanted me to do fame so i read the script and i just couldn't imagine the story and so I passed on it. And plus, I was really busy with my 200 other things. And that was a big, big, uh, it was such a great movie, and I passed on. But, um, of course, through these films and through all of that work in the 80s, you got to work with 
by far some of the biggest pop stars of the era. You know, we can, you know, Pat Benatar, Blondie, Phil Oakley, Kenny Loggins. That's just a very small number. Did you have a favourite at all that you worked with? Maybe with the exception of one or two, I loved everybody. <laughs> oh, like children. No, it's true. It's true. They're all, I mean, singers usually are very nice people. And I go along, I went along with everybody. So you did, did you ever have any problems with any of those stars at all? <laughs> well, I had a little bit of problem with uh, one of the best ever, Freddie Mercury. I did a song for, for a movie, with a silent movie, Metropolis, for which I wrote the music. And there was a, some minor problems. One was, a, I think, a legal or anything about the title, Love Kills. And, you know, he, he was a very intimidating person, one of the best performers, one of the best composers, singers, lyricists background singers, divas, ballet. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, uh, to tell uh, a, a Freddie, uh, you know, that high note, can you do it again? That's not something you do. <laughs> so that created a lot, a lot of friction. I also read that you very nearly worked with Bob Dylan, which sounds like such a interesting concepts like, did that nearly happen or almost yeah uh, i did uh, the music and song for what was it uh, one of the rocky films or, or yeah, yeah, Stone no film? The, the the other one uh, not rocky the other series yeah that one and sylvester wanted uh, wanted a personality a big name to sing the ending and so he said could you compose something for bob dylan he said oh great i mean uh, to work with Bob Dylan, that that would have been my dream. So I composed a song. I went to his beautiful house in Malibu, all made of wood, and uh, I played it. And he heard it, and then he played it again, and he heard it, and I kind of sensed maybe he doesn't like it. And I was just, okay, I'll call you tomorrow and I'll give you my answer. And he said no. So then, of course, my ego was down there but then i thought maybe it's the song was probably good but uh, the the film was very controversial rambo and the bad uh, russians and maybe uh, maybe bob didn't want to get involved with that so i also read during this time which this i don't know if this is true but it sounds incredibly cool you used to test your records by just driving around in your sports car in la really fast blasting music really loud no. <laughs> no, no, I did. Uh, I had one of those beautiful, I won't mention the name, but it's one of the best British cars. It starts with an R, no, two R's. So that became my private listening room. And I had by then the biggest sound system ever, 900 watt. I changed the whole, the whole back was two big speakers and amplifiers and it was great because I would be in the studio I would go out in the parking lot and hear through the radio and and I could get a good feel of the mix but I didn't have a sport car and I didn't drive around okay you were driven yeah no <laughs> okay fantastic but you did actually design a sports car is that right oh wonderful 
no, I didn't design. I invested some money. Okay. I helped uh, the guy. Uh, uh, it was a 16-cylinder designed by Marcello Gandini, who did uh, the, the beautiful Countach of, of Lamborghini. And uh, we sold actually uh, about eight cars. And then in '92, when the car when the car was ready to come out, there was this huge economic crisis, and nothing of the exotic cars, nothing sell, sold. Bugatti didn't sell, Jaguar didn't sell, even Porsche had problems. Yeah. And he actually bared your name, right? It was the what was the name of the car again? Uh, Cisetta Moroder. There you go. <laughs> I had to get my name on. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk about more recent times, obviously one collaboration that's really, really pushed you back into the spotlight is, of course, your collaboration with Daft Punk. But I wondered, how did that come around? Did they approach you? Yeah, actually, the Paul, Paul Hahn, who is the manager, called my manager and said uh, that the, the boys wanted to have lunch with me. And uh, so, obviously, I, w I was interested, but m my son, Alessandro, saw them, saw Daft Punk in Coachella in 2007 and it was phenomenal that pyramid and and he said if you don't go and if you don't take me with you you're not my dad anymore so i went and uh, nice guys uh, one it's i shouldn't even tell but maybe you've read it anyway one guy talks and the other doesn't so Thomas is talks very sometimes difficult to understand you know it's all it's all up there, and and uh, Guimond, silent. Uh, then I tried to speak in French, and he was opening a little bit. But so it was a nice dinner, but kind of interesting dinner, lunch. Sorry, and so they asked me if I wanted to to work with them on uh, on a song, and uh, I didn't hear for several months. Then I was in Paris at the time. They invited me to the studio, and uh, I said, oh, great, so I, I go there, and I, we play piano, and we compose a song. And they didn't want it. They said, you just tell us the story of your, of your life. And I was talking for like two hours, and they recorded, and they, he asked again. It's more or less like what we do. And then I didn't hear anything for like another, almost a year. And uh, I went back to the studio, in Paris, and uh, this guy, uh, Lagata, that's his name, who did most of the recording of the album, was there, and I asked, uh, so, what is the song? What did they do with my voice? He said, I cannot tell you. Yeah, yeah but at least give me some ideas. He said, uh, the only thing I can tell you is that the song is great. So that was good. So then, about three months later, they called me back in Los Angeles, went to the studio, and they played it, and I... I was, first of all, surprised how well they got, at least I think so, how well they got my voice in that, uh, in that song. And it was emotional, too, because you hear yourself talking about your, your life. So I only heard it two times that day, and I never heard it again. But um, you also, of course, won a Grammy for that, or was part of the team that did? Well, the album, yeah. Yeah. Won, yeah. So... You've also, speaking of electronic music, Daft Punk, you've taken to DJing again recently. I just wondered what inspired you to do that after all this time. Well, I, I was asked 
quite a lot in the last years if I wanted to, to DJ. But you know, 10 years ago, the DJ, you know, I, I thought, no, no, I'm a composer, I'm a producer, I don't, I'm not a DJ. But then I did, uh, by pure coincidence, a, a very small 15 minutes DJ for Louis Vuitton at, uh, at one of the shows. The, the Amfa, I did um, uh, one show in Cannes, and then I did uh, my first real show in in, Mun in uh, Brooklyn, the Outpost, and I think it was a big hit. And that's how I started. And then I got a lot of rec requests and... Uh, and and what do you enjoy about DJing, like specifically? First, I love dance music. Second, um, you know, as a as a young guy, I I always wanted to be a, a performer. I was not never able to do it, and I was not never really pushing hard to become a performer. And now, as a DJ, and especially the DJs of today's, they are the stars, right? So. Now I'm a performer. I'm up there. Like uh, I did a few performances, a few gigs. One in Chicago, one in France, in front of thirty thousand people, and it's great. I was performing actually in Chicago. No, no, it was in France, and it was two o'clock at night, and uh, and the kids were still dancing, and and I feel like almost like Michael Jackson, like. I, I think that's how he felt. I almost feel like I'm a, I'm a conductor of a of a, an orchestra. Because obviously, I play my own songs, so I know them in and out. So I conduct one, two, three, up, and then now down. Now let's go. <laughs> the left sings, and now the right one, and it, it's a lot of fun. And um, are there DJs around today that you admire? That you know, you think, hey, I could maybe emulate them somewhat oh they, they are all great uh, uh, one uh, Calvin Harris is probably one of my favorite because he not only is a great DJ but he is a great composer and then the big guys like Tiesto and one of the, my favorite one is uh, Skrillex oh he's a, this guy is a genius so those are the, the guys I, I really like and of, of course you're not just playing dance music you've also made a lot of it on your new album Deja Vu, it's the first in 30 years. Can you explain the concept of the new album? At the very beginning the concept was since Daft Punk got the disco sound back, I thought since I know about disco I should do a whole album about disco. But then, then I thought no, let's do some EDM, some disco and the concept of the singers was to have a, a certain amount of known singers like Kylie Minogue, uh, Britney Spears, then get some new people in. And one of the great singers was Sia, who I loved uh, the Titanium song with uh, David Guetta. Then, of course, Charlie XCX came and had that big hit with uh, uh, I'm So Fancy. And so it's a combination of known, very known people with a lot of experience, and but young too. Like I have one girl in uh, Marlene from from Sweden, very young, very totally unknown. I have um, Matthew Coma, great musician, not too known and almost beginner. Then um, Mickey Echo, great voice. He sang with uh, Rihanna that beautiful song called uh, "Stay." So I think I have a good combination of 
relatively young talents and not that young. I just wondered, C is kind of a person who's been in both a front person and in the background as well. I assume there must have been a certain amount of mutual appreciation for what you do together, seeing as you someone who's been in the background as well and in the, and in the foreground. Just the fact that she sang the song says that she wanted to do it. But interestingly, I never met her. She is very uh, protected, has a lot of people around her. So what I did, <clears throat> which is quite often now in, in, in this new world of kind of recording, I gave her the tracks. It has that line, dong, 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 dong. That was the original. And she did the, uh, they call it the top line. And uh, she r wrote the melody, she wrote the lyrics, she sang it, she did the backgrounds, and... Uh, and she gave it to me. So it, that's how how a lot of time happens where you don't even meet the people. And it, it's all done by internet. You send files and you send them back and you change and you send them. Are you happy to work in that way compared to how you did in the studio back in the day with the people? Yeah, it, the thing which is really tough is to coordinate because... All the, the singers are also busy, so sometimes you send a mix uh, or you send some some stuff to the singers and it takes you a week or two or, or uh, a month. So it, it's a little frustrating from time to time. But all, all in all, that's how it is now. And uh, so you have to adapt. And I wondered if you had any plans to maybe tour the show. Um, a couple of years ago, you were talking about perhaps an idea for a Vegas show, um, A Night with Giorgio. Does that play into this, you know, how you could do something with this new album? Well, I, I doubt that I would get any of the singers which are on the album to come and perform. Maybe one show. Well, actually, I went with uh, Kylie Minogue uh, on her tour in Australia. And that was quite interesting. Uh, the first time I performed in a big arena with the main act. And the first two shows in Perth and Adelaide didn't go that well because people were still coming in and they all went they all came just to see her but then melbourne sydney was great and then at the end uh, brisbane was fantastic and how many people was was that for they those must have been huge gigs yeah basically around eight thousand uh, ten thousand people and um, one of the other huge collaborations on this um, album is the one with Britney Spears. Um, how did that come around? Because that's a cover of Tom's Diner, right, Suzanne? Vega? Yeah, Britney uh, asked the record company if they could ask me if I wanted to produce it. And I think, I guess, that was one of the songs she always wanted to do, but never, never had the chance. So I loved the original anyway, so it was great to do it, to do that one. Interestingly... I had a mix with her where at the end I added a little bit of a vocoder and so she heard it and she loved it so I had to redo. I must say it's a different vocoder. It's not usually a vocoder. You put it on the voice and then you take the voice away and you only hear the vocoder, the sound. This is like the voice and the three harmonies played by with the keyboards more like a uh, like a background singer who sings the notes and then i added a bridge and i sang it that's me <laughs> so now i can say i did a duet with britney <laughs> you've been such a huge force in pushing 
music forward, you know, technologically and, and stylistically. I just wondered if you had any sense of what the big next shift in music would be. What's going to be the next big moves in, in the future of music? First of all, I don't know. <laughs> and second, if I would know, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Good but, answer. You know, I, I was just thinking, sound-wise, there is nothing new. They have millions of sounds, like Skrillex, I think it's one of the who pushes the, the edge. I don't know, maybe, maybe I was thinking uh, the combination of video and, uh, and song, maybe with a hologram, like instead of uh, just hearing the music, you press and you see the singer, maybe that's the future. So we should talk to, to the inventors and, and maybe create, because that would be interesting, right? You have, you have a song and you have the singer or the group. Nice. Can anyone sort out a hologram for Giorgio? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'm writing a musical with my songs and some new, probably disco. So we were thinking maybe they have a hologram and few, I guess a few minutes. And so when I'm not working anymore they can present the hologram so we're going to have some time for questions very quickly so if you could think of some that would be fantastic but just one final question for me you've been doing this for 40 years and you're perhaps more celebrated now than than you ever been so i just wondered what's next for you what's in the next couple of years you know okay i'm finishing the music for a video game for disney for the movie tron I started with the musical. I'm talking to a director of a movie which, it's not a $200 million movie, but it's a nice budget movie. One of the three um, networks are talking to me about maybe a a music TV show, like in the style talent uh, search. And I'm preparing for the second, for the next album. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm waiting to see how this is going and and, and uh, how I'm doing. Did, did you ever imagine that you'd be so busy in your seventies? No, no. And I must say, I was happy not doing anything, but I'm even more happy now that I'm busy. Fantastic. So it'd be great opportunity if anyone had any questions. It would be fantastic to get some from the floor. You used to be a guitarist back in the early days. If you could be a guitarist for any band between then and now, which band would it be? Oh, God. Uh, probably the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you know, not too difficult. like. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but very effective. Like uh, I must say the riff they have in Satisfaction is probably the best ever, except... Whole a lot of love. That is absolute. Um, hi, at the end you talked about um, you'd receive some TV offers, and I just wondered, did it have anything to do with Simon Cow and the Ultimate DJ series? No, it's not at all that. But I just read about that he's yeah. preparing that. Uh, no, uh, they gave me some indications, but it's nothing like I, I would tell you. But I, I yeah. don't know. Cool, thank I don't you. know what it is. Cheers. Hi, hi. I'm so excited, so sorry. I mean, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for everything. So you started now your career as, as a DJ. You are a composer before, now you're a DJ. So what do you think now, what do you suggest for the DJs that want to become a producer now? 
Well, if you're a DJ, you have already a lot of, I'm not saying experience, but a lot of feel what's, what's going on. Because if you DJ, you see pretty much uh, if you play a song and uh, people that don't react. And so a DJ has the advantage of, of knowing what the public wants. Then, of course, to become a producer would be great to maybe to play an instrument. Uh, but a DJ ha has, generally speaking, quite good chances to become a good producer. And I suppose since when you started making electronic sounds that would take you a day to even produce one, now with technology, it's much, much easier, you know. Well, now it's much easier, but it's more difficult in the sense that you always have to have something new. The soundtrack, which I'm doing for the game for, for Disney, we have about, uh, I would say, at least 15 different plugins with different sounds. And I mean, you have to really to learn or have somebody to do because it's, it's getting more and more difficult. For example, a bass or a kick in EDM, a sound is a kick today is old in six months. So then you have to create something new, and it's it's quite it's quite difficult actually. Can you tell about more about your experience coming from the old Moog Modular to modern day plugins, you know, and software oh, music? It's uh, it's like day and night. Uh, the the old Moog, I I never had one because it was too expensive, but to learn how to use it would take days and days and days and. Uh, I always did very, not very, but good demos, but I always had musician. You need the input of a musician, and in this case, I needed the input of somebody who is going to get me a great sound, because it would take me days, and I, I prefer to have somebody who helped me out and, and come in with creative ideas. I suppose that's the secret to a lot of your most successful work. You collaborated with great people, whether it was Donna Summer or great vocalists or... Great engineers, I suppose. And I have great musicians, for example, Keith Forsey, who did most of Donna, and not only Donna, but, but other acts, who became a famous producer. He produced uh, Billy Idol. Then uh, Harold Faltermeyer, who uh, worked on keyboard with me, uh, became a movie, produ uh, movie composer, Beverly Hills Cup 1, 2, 3. The engineer, Coppers, became a relatively famous engineer in Los Angeles. So those great guys who helped me out and finally made them became famous by themselves. Giorgio, I just read um, Niall Rogers' autobiography, and he talks about Studio 54. It sounds like the center of the universe in, in the book. You're reading it and going, wow. Did you go to those nightclubs? Did you get involved? What were they like? Talk us through it. I cannot answer that. Come on. No, 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 no. I went one time. I knew about it. And I just, Love to Love You just came out. And uh, I thought, I have to take a limo. And I go there. So I went with the limo. And I see this huge line. And I said, oh, God, it's going to be so full and so beautiful. And, you know, probably somebody on naked on a horse. <laughs> but I told the driver, go in, ask if I can get in, because I don't want to, to st be in line. So he got me in to my big disappointment. It was empty. It was only 11 o'clock in the evening. I didn't know that the discos, the real one, starts at 1 o'clock or later. 
So I, I was there for like half an hour and I went home. And that's, it was too late for me to, to wait. But I, I heard, like you probably heard, that a lot of stuff happened there. I was there at the wrong time. <laughs> well, your music was there, of course. The music was there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Guess we've got time for a couple more. Uh, you, sir, with the mic. Thank you very much for, for the talk. It's really interesting and sharing your music, your new music. And you seem like a very generous man. And I wanted to ask a technical question about creating the album. You talked about having to basically send it digitally to your artists and then they would work on it and you'd wait for it to come back. Most artists see themselves also as producers now and also work with producers. Do you now have to be much more generous in terms of releasing material digitally and then it coming back? And the second part of my question was, how much of what we were listening to was played live or was or created digitally? I think I had about three or four songs where I had live drums. I did not use live uh, strings because in Los Angeles they are so expensive. And the digital, not produced, but digital uh, sound of violins are so great. But obviously guitar, you, you have to have a, a real guitarist. Drum, drum. You can use there are a lot of great sounds, uh, but uh, I used a lot of Fender Rhodes live. Uh, so about three or four songs were with live, and the rest was all digital. I mean, was all uh, samples. And the other question was the um, collaborating. You send it to a singer. The singer is sort of a producer. Do they then change a little bit the arrangement as well? No, generally, dear, no. I know uh, uh, Mickey Echo sang it. Uh, I changed the, the the arrangement. I mean, I did it. I finished it, and he didn't like it that much, so I changed it again. But in general, the, the singers. My experience is that they liked uh, the way it was. And I notice uh, a lot of singers, first of all, they are all so busy right now. If I compare like with Donna and some artists at that time, Sparks, they were busy, but right now uh, you know, they are traveling. And so it's really difficult to get them in the studio at the same time, in the same country, in the same city. And it's it's a new way to record. And I, I kind of sense that... Uh, they love to work in a studio where they feel like being in a family. <clears throat> so a lot of, uh, most of the singer have obviously their engineer would know exactly how, what mic to use, what's equalization. A lot of those singers have a vocal producer who know how to get the best out of a singer. Well, you know, if I would, if I would go in and suddenly and tell a singer, no, do it this way, do it that way. I think people are, are used to do them by themselves, and a lot of a lot of singers now have uh, studios at home, so they do it whenever they feel like doing it, and I, I think it, it works quite well. Absolutely. I think we've got time for one final question. Hi, Giorgio. I'm really interested in what your views are on the music industry today, particularly how there's a whole generation of, uh, of kids who, who think music is free, who watch on, on YouTube, and it's all free. And artists really can only really earn money these days from live performance rather than recorded music. Really interested in your views on, on the scene today. Well, let's take Spotify 
if they would pay a little more, like right now I think they pay a minimal stuff, that would be great. Because with Spotify and now with Tidal and, uh, and the new Apple system, you can promote an album quite well, and which obviously before you didn't have. The revenues obviously are much, much less. Uh, you know, I, I computed my royalties, they went down with Donna about 5% a year, and, uh, and soon I may have to pay because it's a negative, right? But on the other hand, people are making, they're performing life, the DJs are making money, so it's, uh, it's a little bit balanced, but everybody now has much, much bigger chances to be successful somehow. I remember when I started, a recording would cost uh, at least three, $4,000 a, a song. I was lucky that I had a record company who was, invo who was paying, but uh, I didn't have that money to, to produce a, a, or, a, or sing and compose a song. Uh, now, you know, with, with one computer, a microphone, and a little keyboard, you do absolutely perfect recordings if you are talented. And then with a little you know, ingenuity, a little research, you can have a, a hit through the uh, social media. So it's it's interesting for the younger people because, like, I, I was talking to uh, Moby. The big hit he did, he did, what, the album about seven, eight years ago? Yeah, Play, I think. Yeah, he did it all in his, in his bedroom, actually, not even in his living room. <laughs> 20 years ago, he could, you could never do that. You needed a studio. And, and, and see, I remember I still had a studio about... Uh, 10 years ago, the big SSL and all that kind of junk. I still had the big 24-track Sony Digital. Sorry, Sony. Uh, anybody here from Sony? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is all gone. So now you, you need a laptop and, and that's it. Does that amaze you? Obviously, coming from a place where you had to use simps as big as a room, now it's all in a box. Is that... Is that kind of amazing, really? Oh, I love it. I yeah. love it. I have two synthesizers left in my studio. One is the Roland JP8, and one is a modified uh, Moog, uh, Mini Moog, and I don't even connect them anymore. I have all the sounds I need uh, in, 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 in the box. Fantastic. Well, I think that's about it. Giorgio, thank you so much for sharing your life with us today. It's been thank amazing. You, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again. <laughs>